it's great to see you guys. If you're a guest, I'm David. We're process, just like a lot of other places, opening back up. So every week we get a few more people coming back. We're glad you're here. Glad that folks are still watching online. We appreciate that as well. We're in a series from June and July from John 13 entitled The Night Before. We're looking at the night before Jesus was crucified. All four Gospels talk about it. John spends the most time dealing with it, and what John really deals with in great detail is teaching. Because Jesus had some things to teach. It was his last shot with his apostles, his guys. And he had to teach them. And the bulk of the teaching is found in John 15, 14, 15, and 16. On July 31st, on a Friday night, I'm going to be here. We're going to be here. It's called a deep fry. We do this about once a year. And we're just going to go from 630 to 10 studying those three chapters. So I want to encourage you to come be a part of that. Leading up to that, we have this series, and it's all tied in because John 13 relates, and it moves in to John 14, 15, and 16. And we began our series in John 13 looking actually at the 34th and 35th verse, which we're going to come back to within the series in kind of a reprise. But uh, the, the message then was looking at the fact that Jesus said, a new command I have for you, I give to you, you love one another. It's just how people will know you're my disciples, when you love one another. And we looked and saw that, you know, they ask the question, what does love look like? And that really needs kind of to over everything. We're looking at what does love look like throughout this series. And uh, last week we were kind of with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. That, that story kind of continues. Last week we saw the example of him doing that. This week we see the teaching that comes from him washing the feet of the disciples in John 13, verses 12 through 20. And uh, this is what it says. Here it is. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. If I set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And so here's the thing I want you to see from the message today, and it's simply this. If we love and serve like Jesus, which we talked about last week, if we love and serve like Jesus, people will see a connection between his authority and our authenticity. And you can get that. Because as a follower of Christ, I come to Christ because of his authority. He saves me. He brings me to him. And I live with that authority. And to do that, I have to live a life that is authentic. That's exactly the way Jesus wants it to be. And so what we're going to talk about, start off with, is understanding Jesus. Because that's the thing. I, we, we, uh, we need to realize that when Jesus is dealing with his guys, we would think that they understand everything, but they don't. <laughs> they just don't quite get it yet. That's why he has to teach them so much. And he's running out of time. Verse 12, he, he tells us that, um, that Jesus was through washing their feet, and he took his place, and he asked this question, do you understand why I did this? Because they're not going to understand it right away, and they don't get it. 
We tend to think that these guys who spent, you know, better part of three years with Jesus just kind of understand everything. We look and we read from this side of the New Testament. We read the Gospels and we read all the books that were written by the apostles. And we think, man, these guys, they had to have just understood everything. And we don't realize they had to grow in their knowledge and their awareness. It took a while to get it all. They just don't ever understand it. And it's a, it's a thing for us, too. We have to ask ourselves, do we understand everything? In fact, I will share this with you. To understand what Jesus did, we must first understand who Jesus was and is. We have to understand who he was and is. And that's what he's trying to get through to these guys. He's trying to say, this is who I am. This is what you've got to follow me. This is why you've got to follow my example, as we saw last week. The apostles, you know, when they started with Jesus, they, didn't just, they just didn't go with him every day at first. It took a time. It took a process. They, they were with him for about three years, but the first year or so, they weren't with him all the time. It wasn't until about a year and a half in that all of them were just with him and, and, and learning. And they never quite got it all. One of the important uh, doctrinal considerations for our life is to, is to realize that God reveals himself to us. In fact, one of the things that I teach and I share quite often is that there are four pillars of the Christian faith. Two of them come uniquely to the Christian worldview from the New Testament. Incarnation and resurrection. The rise of Christianity, the fall of Christianity, rests on incarnation and resurrection. Two of those four pillars that Christianity rests upon come from the Old Testament. One is creation, that God created everything. But the other is the doctrine, I guess, or the teaching or the pillar that would come before all else. And that is the revelation of God. That everything we know about God, we know because he reveals himself to us. And his ultimate revelation is in Jesus. We have something that we call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation simply means this. God reveals himself to us through the scriptures leading up to Jesus. <clears throat> progressively. Step by step by step. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says God created in the beginning the heavens and the earth. Here's what you know. God reveals himself to us because we wouldn't know this if God didn't tell us. God is eternal because he exists before anything was created. God creates and God has power. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's all you would know about God. You wouldn't know anything else unless God keeps revealing. And he does reveal. One of the things that I teach a lot, it's important, is in understanding the Bible is to get that the Old Testament is a book that promises something. The New Testament is a book that fulfills that promise. And it all focuses on Jesus. The Old Testament's looking for Jesus, looking towards Jesus. And the people there didn't necessarily know it. They didn't realize it, but that's where it's going. And if you, if you read the Old Testament without the New Testament, when you get through with the Old Testament, you got to feel like something's missing. I mean, it's just kind of like you end in the middle of something. There's got to be more, and there is. There's Jesus. And, and so that's why we say the Old Testament is progressing towards Christ. And even when you get to the New Testament, when you begin to learn about Jesus, you realize you learn it in steps. I mean, if you just go to the first chapter of Matthew, all you know from Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus and the supernatural experience of his birth. Mark's first chapter just tells you about Jesus' beginning of his ministry. In his message, nothing even about his birth. Luke's first chapter tells you all the way back to John. You know a lot more about John than you ever know really about Jesus. The first chapter of the Gospel of John is just this great theological statement, nothing more. If that's all you had, you would know nothing about the resurrection. The story of Jesus progresses. And the apostles' understanding of Jesus 
progresses as well. Why am I telling you this? Because when you come to this passage, they still don't get it. They're not going to get it until after the resurrection. In fact, they're not really going to get it until after the Holy Spirit comes. Then all of a sudden, it begins to make sense. And Jesus is pouring this teaching into these guys that he knows doesn't get it yet. I mean, just think about the concept of the Messiah. These guys live with the Jewish belief that the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem come up on the steps of the temple, surrounded with the coming army, proclaim himself the Messiah, defeat the Romans, and establish the Jewish kingdom. These guys, at this very moment of John 13, still think this way. They still don't get it. How do we know that? As I've shared the last two weeks, because in Luke 22, Luke tells us that they were arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Because they think the kingdom of Jesus, after all he's taught them, is still going to be this reign and rule of the Jews with Jesus as the lead over all the world. In fact, even after the resurrection, 40 days later in Acts chapter 1, as he's getting ready to ascend, he says, hey, I'm going up, I'll come back. And they say, hey, when is the kingdom going to come? Because we still kind of got it in our minds that the kingdom is you reigning over all the earth. It's not until after the Holy Spirit that it all begins to become clear. I share with this with you because you need to get that they don't get it. And probably no place is this even more understood than in the concept of calling Jesus Lord, which we'll see more in a minute. The word Lord in the New Testament comes from this Greek word, kurios. It means to be master, to be the boss. We understand that from an English concept. You have someone who may be your landlord. They're, they're in charge of things. Uh, Debbie and I are watching a series set in, in um, Middle Eastern, uh, excuse me, uh, not Middle, Middle Ages, uh, England, Great Britain, back in, you know, before the thousands and all that. And they keep calling everybody Lord. The king is Lord. The noble is Lord. They're over them. That's the concept. Same thing in Greek. The idea that the word Lord means God is something that develops somewhat slowly in the Gospels. The, the, the disciples know of Jesus as Lord. They think he's their master. They don't quite get yet that he's God, and that's important in what is going to happen here. In fact, after the resurrection, they start to get it. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, and he falls down, and he says, my Lord and my God. He finally gets he is God. So all of this is important because these guys don't quite understand Jesus yet. Just like when people become saved now, they don't quite understand Jesus when they first come saved. It takes a while. See, here's this. Understanding Jesus takes time. It takes time. One of the reasons we're opening up Wombo Land and Upstreet next week is to begin to teach our children. It takes time. We know that the majority of people, over 80% of people who come to salvation do so after the age of 18. That means we have to help them come to know about Jesus before then. That's why we're going to open up Vacation Bible School in a couple of weeks. For better or worse, I think we're the only church or one of the few churches in town having Vacation Bible School. Because your pastor has this, and our staff, they're, go, they're going down this road with me whether they want to or not. <laughs> we have this idiotic idea that we need to teach our children about Jesus as much as we can. Because we don't have much time with them. 
because it takes time to understand Jesus. Now we come to the next thing we're going to see in the passage, and that Jesus is teacher and Lord. He is the teacher and the Lord. And so you have a truth that's going to be stated. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for I am. So here's this truth. The word teacher and Lord in the Greek is offset or is preceded by a definitive article or definite article. He's the teacher, the Lord. You call me the teacher and the Lord as if you understand I'm the only one. I am the one. So these guys would look at Jesus as teacher and Lord, but they didn't quite grasp all that it meant. They, they considered him the Messiah. They didn't fully understand what it meant for him to be Messiah. They didn't fully grasp yet that to be Lord was to be deity. And Jesus says, you're right to call me that. He is affirming what they say. I am teacher and I'm Lord. So what Jesus is affirming right here, this is so critical. He is affirming that he is the Lord in the truest sense. He's not necessarily affirming it as they think it. He is saying, I am the Lord. I am God. I am deity. I am teacher. I'm the Messiah. I am human, the humanity of Christ. And then he's saying, I am Lord, this deity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He says, that's who I am. So with this great truth in mind, then Jesus tells these guys who are his followers, here's the example you need to have. I've washed your feet. You need to wash one another's feet. I said, here's what he says, an example that you must follow. There's a purpose, an example. The English version said, talk about the example that he said. It is the model. What Jesus has done is a model for them, not in washing feet, but what it means to serve. Now, last week, and, and, and I can't go, I don't have time to go over all that I talked about last week when he washed a few of the disciples, is pointing to the cross. The ultimate place of service for Jesus was at the cross where he gave his life. He's saying, I have set an example for you. You need to follow that example. And he gives the reason. And the reason they should follow that example is in verse 16. He said, the master, or excuse me, the teach, the student, is not greater than the master. The one who is sent is not greater than the one who sends them. He is their master. They recognize that. Now, he means more than that. He is Lord. He said, you are not greater than me. And if I am willing to wash feet, if I'm going to set this example of service, you must also. You're never going to be greater than I am. The student's never greater than the teacher. Now, I know sometimes... You know, as guys who learn from people sometime in their life, they seem, seem to think that they excel or they get past them, and I get that. I, I look back at my life. I have mentors. I have guys who would be, in essence, my master. And to this day, I will always give deference to them, even when I know they're wrong and I'm right. Now, it's easier now not to worry because they're all dead. I got, all my mentors are dead. <laughs> you know you get old. When everybody you look up to, you can't really... You look up or you look down, whatever, but he ain't there. But still, I'll read something they wrote. I'll read Dr. Tommy Lee, what he writes in one of his commentaries on Timothy. And I'm like, ah, Dr. Lee, I don't agree with you, but you're my mentor. And so I'm, I'm going to defer to you. And I, won't, I just can't ever argue against Dr. Lee or against Dr. Vaughn or against Dr. Huey, these guys that taught me that I read their stuff, when I think, man, you're not quite right. Why? Because the student never exceeds the master. Jesus is our master. Set this example. Then here's what he tells him. If you follow my example, because I'm the master, 
What he says in verse 17 is if you do what you know to do, what I've taught you, you will, this is so important, you will be blessed, the blessed wife. And so here we come to one of the most misunderstood and really important concepts in word in all the Gospels. The word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. It means to be in the condition of being blessed by one and living in a blessed state. The word technically possibly be translated happy and sometimes people talk about being happy when it's used in the new testament happy doesn't cut it because substance uh, the circumstances make us happy in uh, the sermon on the mount matthew 5 6 and 7 jesus began this is the expectations to live the christian life jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit the humble he gives eight blessings and that blessedness describes the spiritual condition of your life you are right with god to be blessed is to be where god needs you to be. Too often, we live in a culture now that takes the word blessing or bless to be what we should expect from God instead of how we are to live with God. So there's a movement that's growing, and it's, it's, it's sad that it's growing this way, called the prosperity gospel, health and wealth and all that. And, and the prosperity gospel says blessings are things that you receive. So you ask God for blessings, blessings. And you claim these blessings under the authority of Jesus. You say, I take the authority of Christ, he's our authority, and I take the authority of Jesus, and I claim this, and I claim this, and it's mine. And they tell you that if you don't have these blessings, it's because you lack faith. There are several churches in town that do that. There's a new one starting up that's going to do that. There's the biggest church in El Paso teaches that. This is a heresy, a false teaching that gets Christianity wrong completely. The Christian faith isn't claiming the authority of Christ so that we can claim blessings from God. The Christian faith is living under its authority so that we can live the blessed life and be a blessing to others. Here's the thing. Because he is Lord, Jesus has the authority to call his followers to love and serve as he did. That's what he does. He calls us to love and serve as he did. What did Jesus do? He gave his life. He served. He committed himself completely. That's what he calls us to do. The Christian life is a blessed life, but the blessedness isn't the things we get, the money, the prosperity, even the health. <laughs> Can you imagine telling Paul, hey, the Christian life is to live a healthy life, as Paul suffered the entire time of his faith? No, the Christian life is a life of following the master and loving and serving people. There is blessedness. And, and this idea that we are to get blessings, and, and we are blessed, I get that. But this idea that we're to obtain these things is the result of 20th and 21st century, Amer uh, 21st century American thinking. This is an American cultural concept. We deserve things. Things are supposed to be ours. We're supposed to get stuff. Let me tell you something. Do not buy into the culture's demand for rights and privileges, which exists. But instead, commit to Jesus' call for love and service. We live in a time right now where all we're seeing is, is our right, it's our privilege. We want our rights. We want this. We want these things. And the church is giving into that. The church is buying into this. That people's lives are about their rights and privileges. No. People's life is about following Jesus. He is our authority. And to follow Jesus, to live the blessed life, is a life of love and service. That is it. And if you don't live that life, you're missing the blessedness. Not in getting stuff, 
not in achieving things, but in surrendering your life completely to Christ. To love as he loves. And to serve as he serves. Because he is the authority that calls us to that life. Don't make the mistake of trying to appease the culture. Because you think in appeasing the culture, you will change the culture. All you will do is change Christianity. We don't do that. We love them. We serve them. Because of the one who sins. You see, the one who sins sends us out into that culture. He says, I'm the Lord. And then he gives another example. He kind of takes a change. And, and, and starting in verse 18, he changes directions on him. And he says, I've chosen you, so I want you to be comforted. You rest assured of this. He says, but one of you, you need to realize, for the sake of fulfilling Scripture, he will be the one who eats bread with me and turns against me. That's what he says. So he's, he's pointing to Judas. Next week, I'm going to talk at length about Judas. If you want to know about Judas, next week, this sermon about Judas. And you know, I'll deal with all the stuff with Judas. But as I've shared this last couple of weeks, I mean, to John, what Judas did is important. He see, John understands Jesus is trying to get Judas and bring him, bring him, bring him back into the fold. Because Judas is gone. And, and so he wants them to understand what's happening. In the Old Testament, there's a psalm, Psalm 41. And in Psalm 41, David is writing kind of a psalm that deals with his frustration because one of his closest advisors has turned against him. In 2 Samuel 17, Absalom is rebelling against his dad, David. And one of David's number one advisors, his number one advisor probably, Ahithophel, turns against David and goes with Absalom, probably because of his connection with Bathsheba. That's a whole other issue. David says in Psalm 41, he is the one who broke bread with me but kicked against me or raised up his heel against me. The idea is kicking or tripping. Now, in this particular passage now, with Judas betraying him, Jesus is identifying Judas with the Hippophil. He's saying, in essence, he's fulfilling that scripture. Now, if you go read Psalm 41, you don't think of it as being a psalm that predicts something. Remember what I told you about progressive revelation. Part of the beauty of progressive revelation, we should understand, is that in the New Testament, we see things that we are told are the fulfillment of the Old Testament, when if you read the Old Testament, you wouldn't realize that it was something that needs to be fulfilled. That's the beauty of the New Testament. Jesus and the gospel writers understood the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Here's one of those places you see that scripture being fulfilled. In that fulfillment, Jesus wants them to understand, and he tells them in verse 19, when this happens, what you need to realize and know that you are to believe that I am the one who is, that I am who I am. So the purpose of this betrayal when it occurs, is it'll be a sign to them that Jesus is truly the Lord. I am who I am. I am the Lord. Now, in a few hours, this betrayal is going to happen, and they're going to come get Jesus in the garden. And those guys don't think at that moment anything about this being a sign. <laughs> they, they, they fight and then they scatter, you know. And so they're not thinking, oh, hey, Judas betraying Jesus is a sign. He's really the Messiah and the Lord after all. They're not thinking that. But someday they'll look back on that like now. And they'll realize 
This is a sign to you that I'm the Messiah so that you may believe, have faith. Trust me that I am, that I am who I am. And that phrase, I am who I am, uh, in the Greek, it's a reference all the way back in the way that it's written. All the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked God, whom shall I say sent? Who do I tell the people that you sent? And God said, who is it? And God said, tell them I am who I am. Yahweh is Yahweh. I am who I am. That's the Hebrew version. In the Greek version, it's ego and me. Jesus is, you know, John's writing, ego, I mean, I am, I, I am who I am. He's referencing himself as the Lord. Jesus is saying the betrayal in fulfilling the scripture points to me as Lord. When this happens, understand this. This is a sign to you. So that, in verse 20, when you go out, anyone who receives or accepts the one who I sent, they're accepting me. And whoever accepts me since, accepts the one who sent me, which is the Father. So as I send you out with this message, because I am the Lord, and you have the assurance that I am the Lord, part of the assurance that I am the Lord has to do with the betrayal and fulfillment of Scripture. These things are indicators to you of who I am. When you go into the world and you love them and you serve them the way I set an example for you to do and the way I'm calling you to do it, they will accept your message. And when they accept your message, they are accepting me. And when they accept me, they accept the Father. We live in a culture that needs Christ. How do we go out and connect them to Jesus? That's the issue. He sends us. We connect them to Jesus when we love and we serve the way Jesus did. He's the authority. So get this. People without Jesus are looking for authenticity from his followers. They want us to be authentic. The real thing. Trying to be like the culture. Trying to give in to the culture is not authentic. It's not real. It's a fraud. Giving and living the way Jesus calls you to live is authentic. And he calls us to live loving and serving people. To go to them and love them. And we can do this because he is Lord. And we have the confident assurance that he is Lord. Now, on this side of the cross, and this side of the resurrection, it is the resurrection of Jesus that gives us that confidence. The resurrection of Jesus, in him washing the feet of the apostles, he is pointing to that event. So here we understand that he is trying to get through these guys who don't quite get it. Listen, one day, you're going to get all this. And when it makes sense, you need to go follow my example and reach people. Because here's the thing. Jesus knows what it takes to reach people. He does. It takes followers who love and serve as he did, the Lord. Anything else within the Christian faith that takes you away from loving and serving both the Father and people is not under the authority of Christ and it is not authentic. It is a fraud and a fake. In our life, is, we are called to live that authentic Christian life. So, as I shared with you from the very beginning, 
if we will love and serve like Jesus, people will see a connection between the authority of Christ and the authenticity of our life. That's what needs to happen. You need to live the real life because he is Lord of all. Because he is Lord, you need to trust him as Lord. And it's possible that some of you have never trusted Christ to be the Lord of your life. Maybe you're online watching and you never trusted Christ to be Lord. And maybe you're sitting here in the congregation and you've never trusted Christ. You need to do that. It's the first step in following Jesus. As the authority, he calls you to a life to trust him. If you've never trusted him, you can do that now. In a few moments, if you're here, you can come and, and you can talk to one of the guys on staff or one of the ladies that are up here about giving your life to Christ. Or if you're watching, there'll be a number on the screen that you have. You can text respond to that and someone will get back with you. But if you are a follower of Christ, then you need to ask yourself, is it authentic? Is it real? And how do you know it's real? Because you love and you serve people. That's it. So here's the question. Who do you need to love and who do you need to serve? Who do you need to love and who do you need to serve? And today you may say, this is the person I need to love and I need to serve. And you need to make the commitment to do that. The other question you may ask, or any other question you may ask is, where do I need to love and serve? Because there may be a place where you don't exemplify the love and service of Christ the way you should. Maybe in your family, maybe at work, maybe with your friends. I would say maybe at school, but that doesn't look like that's an issue anymore. Where do you need to love and serve? And then the third question I was asking you is when? When does this need to happen? When, when, is the, when is the next opportunity going to arise for you to live the authentic Christian life? When is the next chance for you to love and serve like Jesus? You know, sometimes we don't always get it at first. We have to kind of grow in our faith. It takes time to understand Jesus. It does. But once you understand him, once you begin that process, then you need to understand the call upon your life to love and serve like Jesus. That is the authentic. That is the real. Well, Father, we, we come before you having had a great opportunity to worship you. and Father, hopefully learn something from you. And in becoming the name of Christ, in becoming the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we make no claims for ourselves. We simply come as those who either are following you or are those who need to follow you in Christ. So I pray that you would touch the lives of those who are not followers. That they would give themselves to Jesus completely. And for those of us who are followers, Lord, that we would quit trying to copy the culture and quit trying to appease the culture. And realize the call upon our life, Father, is to be authentic, to be the real thing. And to be the real thing is to love and serve like Jesus. Let that be the call upon our life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand? If you need to come forward, we'll be here.